Our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, two separate parts of John's Gospel. The first, uh, some selected verses from chapter 1, and then uh, some verses from chapter 19. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. So when someone volunteers to read scripture in church, there are basically two things that they really hope to avoid. The first are unpronounceable Old Testament names. No one wants a passage that includes a name that they're just going to make a mess of. If you want an example of that, you can go to 1 Chronicles chapter 1 in the Old Testament of the Bible, where you find an entire chapter of these kinds of names. Names like Mahalalel, Jetheth, and my favorite, Oholibama. What a great name. Just say it together. Oholibama. So you don't want the unpronounceable name. And the other thing that you hope to avoid when you volunteer to read scripture is basically anything to do with sex because really nobody, young or old, wants to stand up in front of their congregation and read a passage about sex. So those are the two things that readers hope to avoid. For altogether different reasons, a third category might include passages about the end of Jesus' life. Not because the words are difficult to pronounce or because it's an awkward theme, but because they take us places that we would rather not go. And they ask us to face things that we would rather not face. And so Helen, sets us up with beautiful words celebrating Jesus as the eternal word of God, the light of all mankind, full of grace and truth, only to unravel a graphic account of the mockery and torture that preceded Jesus' final journey to the cross. Last weekend, Melissa and I were driving home from Huntsville down Highway 11, and it started to snow, at first lightly, then a little heavier, and she took a little video and sent it to our family chat saying, oh my goodness, we're driving through a blizzard, ha-ha. Um, it was ha-ha until it wasn't, until all of a sudden the highway itself was a sheet of ice, and the car began to fishtail. It went first to the right, a little to the left. I'm starting to get nervous. The adrenaline is pumping through my system. Melissa's saying a prayer. It shifts again to the right, shifts again to the left. I have enough time to calculate like what our chances of spinning out are. I figured probably 80 to 90% chance we're gonna spin out. And I was just thinking to myself, just do everything you can to keep this car at least on the road. Just keep it on the road, not going into the ditch. Uh, we did not fishtail a fifth time. Fortunately, I was able to get things under control and we gradually slowed down and everything was fine. For the first three weeks in this series, the road has been clear. Maybe the occasional drizzle when Jesus had an rough encounter with the Pharisees. But in week four, Jesus hits a snowstorm of his own, and he finds himself dangerously close to sliding off the road altogether. We're going to conclude our exploration of the life of Jesus according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John, like a portrait that an artist is still working on. Today is about adding fine detail that really makes the image pop, that makes the, the portrait come to life. Now, thinking about Jesus without this morning's content would be like being satisfied with frame three in the previous diagram. And so you look at those and you think, well, they're not that different. Kind of number four looks the same as number three. But I want to show you a close-up, a detail of those two faces. And when you see the close-up, you realize that frame three looks like amateurish and frame four looks lifelike. Now, I'm not satisfied and you shouldn't be satisfied with either with stopping short of getting that full picture of who Jesus is. So among my final words as your pastor, I want you to hear an invitation to embrace Jesus in all his fullness, no matter what the cost, and to know that this embrace will be a mutual one. To borrow from the words that Jesus spoke to Peter at the end of John's gospel, my prayer is that we will allow ourselves to be led where we do not want to go. Now that's the end of John's gospel, but of course we need to go back to the beginning of his gospel. And actually that's where he begins. John chapter one and verse one says, in the beginning was the word. I took a course in seminary course a few years ago and the professor was suggesting that it might've made more sense for John's gospel to actually go first in the New Testament because it was intentionally meant to mirror the first book of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The book of Genesis begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and John's gospel begins in the beginning was the word. John wanted to link these two creations together forever in the imaginations of his readers. Now, if you've been tracking over the last three weeks, you might be confused by why John starts off his account of the life of Jesus so dramatically different than the other three. Well, when it comes to the gospels, John is like the sibling who just doesn't quite feel like they fit in with the rest of the family. No need to show your hands here, it's okay. Um, there's actually a name for the first three Gospels. They're called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's John. He just doesn't fit in, uh, and for good reason. This Gospel was written much later and therefore intentionally different. John would have been aware of the content of the other Gospels, and he would have known the story of Jesus' life that they told, and so his was an opportunity to bring some clarity and to help his readers avoid any potential misunderstanding about who Jesus was. In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, Greek term logos, which could maybe be defined a principle of divine reason and creative order. It wasn't a, a Christian word, it wasn't a Hebrew word, it was a Greek word. Now for John, Jesus is the Word made flesh, God present since the beginning of time, or as Eugene Peterson translates it in the message, the Word became flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood. Everything we've learned over the past three weeks about the things Jesus did in the neighborhood that we call Earth, these were not just the words and actions of an ordinary man, even a very inspiring one, but of the eternal Son of God. Now John draws us our attention to some seriously bold claims that Jesus makes about himself that require equally bold faith from his followers. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. 
Now, brief historical tangent for you. We're going to go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus, where Moses is out on a mountainside, and he sees something strange. He sees a, a bush that is on fire, but strangely is not actually being consumed by the fire. He says, this is odd. I'm going to go take a closer look. And when he does, he hears the voice of God speaking to him. God calls him to this particular task, and Moses says, well, when I go and do this task, people are going to ask. They're going to want to know what's the name of this God that sent you. And God responds by saying, tell them that I am sent you. So that's the tangent, but of course there really are no tangents. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in a conversation with the religious leaders, and he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They kind of like shrugged their shoulders. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? It's like you can almost sense their eyes rolling. They're like, who does this guy think he is? Every time he opens his mouth, something crazier comes out of it. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus responded, and this is his way of saying, pay very close attention to what I'm about to say, because it matters maybe even more than what else I've said. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, had I not just read the passage about Moses and the encounter at the burning bush, you might be saying, well, that's strange. Jesus is usually so eloquent. Why did he make such an awkward statement before Abraham was born, I am? That's not a proper English sentence. But what he was doing was he was saying, not only am I the bread of life, not only am I the light of the world, I am taking on the name that God revealed to be his own. Now you might be thinking, oh, I don't know, that does, seems like you're maybe stretching things, unless you look at the reaction of the people that Jesus was speaking to. The very next verse says, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, I wanted to have these particular two passages read from John back to back to help us frame the grand sweep of Scripture, and specifically Jesus' place in it. You see, if the first passage announces that everything that ever was or ever will be came into being through Jesus, the second passage demonstrates that even those credentials couldn't prevent Jesus from becoming the target of the world's anger and hate. In keeping with the series, we're going to continue where we left off, and that was with the Last Supper. Now, in Luke's orderly account, where we spent some time last week, Jesus shares his last meal with his inner circle in chapter 22, and the book ends in chapter 24. In John's account, the last meal is shared in chapter 13, and the book ends in chapter 21. So some basic math will tell you John spent a lot more time talking about the events of the last couple days of Jesus' life on earth. It's as if John was saying, without saying it directly, this is the part that matters the most. And so chapter 13 begins this way. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his other outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. I don't think that I can overemphasize just how profound these words of John are. Think about these two phrases in the same sentence. He had come from God. He wrapped a towel around his waist. Oh, the Jews were longing for a Messiah who would ride into town and overthrow the Roman oppressors by force. What do they get instead? Someone who washes their feet. But not only someone who washes their feet, someone who says that they needed to wash one another's feet as well. The way that we were created to live in this world is on full display in Jesus. 
but we can't remain bystanders. We are called to pattern our lives after him. But then it's even more than that. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's not that we're just observing Jesus. It's not even that we're imitating him. It's that we remain connected to him in order to live this flourishing life of faith. Now, one of the things that I love about this space that we've had the privilege of worshiping together in over the last nine years is the intention of the architect who designed the space. I remember reading a booklet about it, and one of the details that you may or may not have noticed are these vines and branches that are carved into the front of the pulpit and the lectern and the altar rail. Vines and branches. And the architect wanted people to always be focusing on this invitation of Jesus to remain connected in him. So every time you see these carvings, it's a reminder, he is the vine, we are the branches. We can't do anything unless we remain connected to him. Now, as John's gospel goes on, chapter 17 features a lengthy and passionate prayer of Jesus for his disciples, including one of the more mind-blowing phrases in a gospel that is filled with mind-blowing phrases. Chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. In that moment, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who spoke into existence everything that has ever been and ever will be, prayed for you. He prayed for me. Thank you, John, for sharing this gift with us. Thank you for eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer and writing down what he said to remind us that Jesus was praying for us that night. John had seen it all. He had been there for every moment that mattered in Jesus' life, but for the countless millions of us who missed out on being physically present in those early years of the common era, John reminds us that Jesus prayed for us. And when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. In this garden, which I'm sure would have been a beautiful place to spend some time during the day, the darkness of night rolled in to match the sinister plot that was at play behind closed doors, quickly speeding Jesus along to the end he had been anticipating. A betrayal by one of his inner circle, a denial repeated three times over by another, questioning before the high priest, questioning before the Roman governor. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would prevent, fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. King or no king, Jesus would be mocked, tortured, and led away at the demand of the mob. Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! But Jesus' rejection is at our hands today, every bit as much as it was at the hands of the mob all those years ago. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
Jesus takes the cross and walks up the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there, John records, they crucified him. Four little words, three in the Greek, and the light of all mankind was snuffed out. N.T. Wright reminds us that making Jesus the supreme example of someone who lived a good life might be quite bracing to contemplate, but it is basically safe. It removes the far more dangerous challenge of supposing that God might actually be coming to transform this earth and us within it, and that this could be achieved only through the shocking and horrible events of Jesus' death. Jesus as moral example, he writes, is a domesticated Jesus, a kind of religious mascot. No, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to follow him all the way. But something happens in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. I've been using this analogy over the last few weeks of a portrait and the gradual steps of, of this portrait that reveals who Jesus is. And, and this is maybe what would have happened over the years as the disciples followed him and learned from him and imitated him and got to know him and spend that time with him. But then all of a sudden, his light is snuffed out, he's buried in a tomb, and something unique happens. I was thinking about this portrait analogy and I thought of another thing. Uh, maybe if you've seen these videos of these speed painters and they get up and they start splashing like color up on the canvas and, and they're doing this and that and, and you're trying to watch and you're like, what are they painting? And, and they add a little more color and then they add a little more and they're going here and there. And they only, it only takes them like a minute and a half to do these things. And then at the very end, they spin the canvas upside down and you realize, oh my goodness, it's a portrait of Anderson Cooper. And it's like the whole time they were painting something and we're trying to figure it out. And this is what God did on that first Easter Sunday morning, right? He flips the canvas and we're like, oh my gosh, we thought we knew what this story was about. And now it is totally different. In John 20, verse 19 and 20, we read on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the door locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an event that forever changed the world we live in. And it is a reminder that the end is never truly the end. The novelist Louis Lemour writes, there will come a time where you believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. John concludes his gospel this way. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Back in 1998, when we launched our student church, the embassy, I was wrestling with these questions. Like, what do I want a Monday night service to be about? What is the, like, the one thing that I want students to leave with week in and week out. And so I asked the question, well, why did Jesus come? Like, what was his, like, primary purpose and focus? And I found an answer in John chapter 10 and verse 10. Jesus said, I came so that everyone would have life and have it in its fullest. And so on the floor of our first apartment on Herb Street West, uh, I rolled up this big sheet of, of, pa of paper or this canvas, and I began to paint the words 
from John chapter 10, and it became a banner that hung in the humanities theater in our early years, because I thought everyone who walks in the store is going to read these words, and they are going to know that Jesus came to give them life and life to its fullest, that Jesus came to bring you life and life in its fullest. Again from N.T. Wright, the good news is that the living God is indeed establishing his kingdom on earth as in heaven through the finished work of Jesus and is inviting people of all sorts to share not only in the benefits of this kingdom, but also in the work through which it will come to its ultimate completion. One last story and one final reflection. I was thinking about a story that I wanted to share, and, and this is one of my all-time favorite stories. It's from 2007 when our family of five went on a road trip to Prince Edward Island. Uh, show a picture of our kids. Uh, you hardly recognize them. They are much younger than they are now, uh, the age of many of your kids, perhaps. Um, we took this road trip, and we got this cottage where we bunked down for three weeks uh, off the shore of PEI. Now, the first day that we're there, the, the hosts, so they lived on the property as well, they kind of showed us around, they showed us how to get down to the water, and they showed us where the boats were, and they talked to us about the tides, which didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to us, we're not from uh, the coastal area, but they said it was really important, that we needed to pay attention to when the tides were in and out, high, low, and that we could find this information in the local paper, and we're just like, this cell seems really confusing, we'll just go out for a boat ride, I'm sure everything will be fine. Well, the next day we did, we went down to the shore, brought the kids down, and we got the canoe, and I was like, are we sure this is a good time to go and, and you know at risk of throwing her under the bus Melissa said yes this is a good time to go uh, so we got in the canoe and we went out and we were maybe on this little small bay for 10 minutes tops when I started to realize that something was wrong because when I looked in the water beside me as I was paddling I saw like reeds and grass and I thought uh, if this was high tide I probably shouldn't see grass and it was just the thought was just forming in my mind when all of a sudden I felt a bump and our canoe had bottomed out so there we were in the middle of this body of water and we could not move. I dug my paddle into the muck and the mud and I tried to push us forward and I maybe moved us an inch or two and I realized I was going to have to actually get out of the canoe and try to push us so we could get back into some deeper water. So I did. I stepped out and I stepped out not into only a foot of water but into another foot of million-year-old sediment and sludge. It was one of the most disgusting feelings I've ever experienced in my life. Um, went down mid-shin mid in this stuff, and I tried my best to pull, to push this canoe to, uh, to freedom, but I couldn't do it. So I had to do the thing that no husband ever wants to do. I asked my wife to get out of the canoe and help me push. Uh, I had just told her about how disgusting this was, which I shouldn't have done, um, so she was nervous about getting in. She grabbed Owen's dinosaur flip-flops and she puts them on her feet. Uh, one foot goes in, again, goes six inches under the surface, flip-flop gone. The next foot goes down, other flip-flop gone. She's like screaming, the kids are like crying, Owen is praying, he's like, God in heaven above, help us! And we're doing our best and we finally nudge this canoe and it gets off of the, the ground and finally we're in deeper water. I get in quickly and I paddle ourselves into this deeper channel that would lead us back to the shore. The moment that we find ourselves in as a community of faith was neither planned nor expected, but here we are, sitting in our respective bottomed-out canoes, facing what feels like an uncertain future. But sitting in our canoes, it's not going to get us anywhere. All we're going to do is get sunburned and dehydrated. We're going to have to get out. We're going to have to step into that million-year-old sediment and sludge. And we're going to have to push and pray and maybe even cry our way into that channel that we know is there somewhere waiting for our arrival. Elevation, you are a church that is both the family I have grown up in 
and the child that I have raised. To everyone who has come alongside Melissa and I and our family over these past 23 years, joining with us in the vision of building this church, I want to say thank you. We have loved being on this journey of faith with you, and it has been an honor beyond words for me to serve as your pastor. My prayer is that you will rise to the occasion in this unique moment in your story, discovering the strength, the courage, the patience, the perseverance, and the faith that you need to navigate this church out into the deeper waters of God's grace. May you continue to gather as a community called together by God, always and ever recentering yourselves in the story of Jesus as told in our sacred scriptures. May you avoid the temptation to conform to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. May you embrace your true identity as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, choosing to build your life on the solid foundation of Jesus' words. May you choose to take up your cross daily and follow him, rethinking your lives in light of the fact that the kingdom of the heavens is now open to all. May you follow the example of Jesus, who ate with tax collectors and sinners, because there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. May you respond to the master's call to go into the roads and the country lanes and compel whosoever to come in and enjoy the feast that God has prepared for them. May you too know the love of a father whose arms are always outstretched and whose heart longs for you to come home, whether you have been away for hours, for days, or for years. May you live fully in the way of Jesus, demonstrating in your words and in your actions the inbreaking kingdom of heaven. May you regularly draw near to God in prayer, walking through each and every day with a keen awareness that God is with you and that he will never leave you. And in all of this and more, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.